The following is an encore episode here on Tales from the South. Just as I start to feel better, he slugs my arm and cries, Got you last! Yep, that was our plan. From UALR Public Radio and William F. Lehman Public Library, this is Tales from the South, recorded in front of a live audience at Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas. Most of my crazy ideas that I gave my brother went directly from my spoken word into action within seconds. 15 seconds and four or five licks into the spanking, it was going really well for us. And as I walked down the alley toward home, I smiled to myself. I knew that the end of the world was surely postponed. Each week, it's an intimate dinner with everyday Southerners on our unrehearsed show, telling their story as if they were sitting on the porch with you. So sit back, relax, and reconnect with the power of a story. Here's executive producer and host Paula Morrell, live at Tales from the South. Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas, into another edition of Tales from the South, where Southerners, everyday people, bring their own true stories to life. I'm your host, Paula Morell. So what'd you think about our house band, Montgomery Trucking? You can check them out at MySpace and Bonnie Montgomery on Facebook to hear more. And how about our blues guitarist, Mark Simpson, here? Mark wrote our theme music and plays for us live each show. And our incredible setback here is made of genuine screen doors with mixed-media portraiture by esteemed Arkansas artist V.L. Cox. A portion of the proceeds from the sale of these works goes to Tales from the South. More can be seen at her website, greatfineart.com. All right, are y'all ready for some Southern-style storytelling? On tonight's show, you're going to hear stories all about boyhood, boys and the trouble they can cause. All stories are true and all told by the Southerners who live them. Later tonight, Chuck Buckus kicks a rusty can in an alleyway and potentially saves the world. And then Daniel Kohler is on the way to Little League practice when he mutters something the others in the car aren't about to let him forget. But let's start the night with Hank Godwin, his rambunctious brother, and a loaded BB gun in The Shot Heard All Over Texas.
My brother Carol and I knew we were going to get a belt from our dad, gentle giant that he was. He was six foot four inches tall and quiet most of the time, but when mom's anger moved to threats of being dealt with by our dad when he got home, he could put on a whooping if it came to that. This was the 60s in the rural South, long before timeouts, standing in the corner, or even groundings. <laughs> it was going to be a pure and simple, physical, teeth-chattering, backside-blistering, loud screaming and crying spanking. In other words, there was no talking our way out of this one. I was 11, Carol 10, and we had been home alone. I'm sure it had been my idea as usual to pull out our BB guns and do target practice in our bedroom. <laughs> Since I could convince Carol to do anything that seemed risky or fun to his warped ego, it started with hanging our punt pass and kick awards from the ceiling, awards we had won by beating almost every kid in our age in Carson County. The hard copper BBs ripped through them with great precision as we smugly applauded each other with our prideful eyes. Then it was time for a real challenge, something more suited for our obviously masterful skill level. I'm sure it was my idea, and I'm even sure that Carol pulled the trigger on the now infamous shot heard all over Texas. <laughs> we could see about a three-inch square of my mother's porcelain face kitchen oven from our bedroom. <laughs> the shot would have to go from our bedroom, through our hallway, across the corner of the den, into the dining room, under the cabinets with my mother's good china, and travel about 10 feet of kitchen before striking the oven door. There was no discussion. Most of my crazy ideas that I gave my brother went directly from my spoken word into action within seconds. I felt like we were walking the 13 steps of the gallows as we eased out of our bedroom, down the hall, through the den and dining room, and into the kitchen to inspect our dirty work. We knew exactly what the outcome was going to be when our mom got home and spotted the chip porcelain with the petite dimple on raw metal. <laughs> we had to have a plan. Carol said we needed some padding. That way it wouldn't hurt as much. <laughs> yep, that was our plan. <laughs> it is unbelievable to me today that I considered this a good plan. <laughs> After all, it came from Carol. We quickly stuffed kitchen towels in our jeans and sat quietly in our room waiting for our parents to come home. I remember the mumbling coming from the kitchen and my father stepping into our room. He always waited to pull his belt off until he got in front of us. I'm pretty sure it was part of the overall punishment experience. We knew there was no turning back once the weapon was drawn through all the loops of his pants. A belt in hand and being mad was not a good combination for Carol and me. Bend over, the words I hated to hear my dad say. Fifteen seconds and four or five licks into the spanking, it was going really well for us. 
the towels were working great. <laughs> Our plan should have included some fake screaming and crying because, <laughs> because my dad lifted Carol's shirt to see the towel sticking out of his pants. He disappeared for a few minutes into the den where I'm positive I heard laughing. <laughs> However, creativity would get us nowhere. We had to complete our punishment. We took the next several licks on bare behinds, raw leather on bare behinds. We survived as we always did, our bond deeper. Several weeks later, on one of our stops walking home from school, we decided to drop in on Mom. We needed two quarters for the soda fountain. We barely entered the lobby of the county extension office where she worked before the giggles and jabs began to roll out of her co-workers' mouths. <laughs> Have you killed any toasters today? <laughs> we quickly pivoted and headed straight home neither of us handling the embarrassment very well. Then I realized, thanks to our mom, that we were destined to become fairly famous in a multiple county area of the Texas Panhandle, <laughs> and all from a single incredible shot. Godwin is a longtime resident of North Little Rock and married to Liza, his wife of 34 years. He is worried and hopeful that his two wonderful sons will one day share similar embarrassing family experiences in public. <laughs> in our next story, Chuck Butkus takes a shortcut through a dirty alley on his way home and has to decode a world-saving signal in The End of the World. It was a beautiful sunny day and I was walking home from school. I was eight years old and the world was scheduled to end. There had been quite a bit of discussion around school about the end of the world. Some said it was going to happen, others said it was all a joke. I wasn't sure, but I thought it might be wise to be safely nestled at home before it happened. I walked the same path each day on the way home and part of it was through an alley. It was an alley like most other alleys, rusty garbage cans, scrap wood fences that needed paint and sometimes other interesting stuff. As I passed through the center of the alley, I saw something glistening on the ground. I took a couple of steps closer before I realized what it was. Someone had flattened a tin can, but it was the weirdest tin can I've ever seen. It wasn't strange that there was a flattened tin can in the alley. What was strange that this one, there was nobody around, and the can was trying to reposition itself. It flashed as it tilted from side to side. I approached it cautiously. The can was definitely tilting back and forth. I hastily scanned the nearby drooping fence for scheming faces. None. I flashed my eyes to the garbage cans, searching for a clue. Was someone playing a trick on me? No, I was alone. I examined the crime scene carefully to see if someone had hooked a piece of string or wire to its edge. Nothing. The wind wasn't blowing, but the can was moving erratically and without any discernible pattern. I knelt down next to it, and using a popsicle stick I found on the ground, I lifted the edge of it and looked underneath. There was no solution under the can, only another mystery. I saw a large black beetle on his back, 
his six shiny black legs battling the crushing weight of the steel above him. He pushed and twisted, trying to escape, but he was effectively trapped. I gently lowered the can back into place and stood looking down. The can again began sending its flickering SOS. I wondered if this was part of the end of the world. How could the beetle get underneath a flattened tin can if he was upside down? The problem was definitely beyond the capabilities of my eight-year-old brain. I was confused. Was the bug under the can a sign? Was I too dumb to understand what was happening? The can kept flashing its coded signal and confusing me more. Why me, I thought. What did I do wrong today? <laughs> was this a test? Then I understood. It came to me in a blinding flash. I did not understand physics or even how to spell the word, but I knew there was a way to solve this problem. I picked up my right foot and smashed the can, the bug, the <laughs> problem, one giant stomp. And as I walked down the alley toward home, I smiled to myself. I knew that the end of the world was surely postponed. <laughs> Thank you. Chuck Butkus is the author of four published books, The Thinking Rocks, The Vampire's Fourth Feather, The Vampire's Secret, and Upstairs with Angelina. In the last five years, he has won 28 awards for prose and poetry. In our final story of the night, Daniel Kohler tries to fill the silence in his mother's 57 station wagon, but ends up setting himself up for an ambush in Misunderstanding Seems to Run in Our Family. I'm sitting in the front seat with Mama and little Bobby, my kid brother. In the back seat, the Libby twins are fighting again. They're always getting wrapped around the axle about something. Mama says they're jealous one might get more attention than the other, but I always thought they just enjoyed fighting. Mama's driving us to Little League practice in our 1957 Emerald Green Chevrolet station wagon. It's a real sharp car. Daddy special ordered it direct from Detroit because Mama is real particular about her things. She says nothing reflects back on you like your car does. And being a farmer Miss North Little Rock, she certainly doesn't want to go around town looking tacky. <laughs> I'm not bragging, but Mama is gorgeous. Her beauty operator swears she could be Loretta Young's kid sister. Even to take us to baseball practice, Mama will get all dolled up. A nice cocktail dress, high heels, a good pocketbook, and those single-strand Mickey Moto pearls Daddy gave her on their wedding day. When I was little, I used to call them her Mickey Mouse pearls. <laughs> I mishear things sometime. I think I get it from Mama. In the back seat, Larry and Jerry Libby have been fighting ever since we picked them up. They're playing Gotcha Last. It's a game where you punch a kid in the arm and holler, Gotcha Last. Then the kid waits until you aren't looking and tries to hit you back. Let me tell you, gotcha last can get real old quick. If a kid gets way out of line, mama will set him straight. But most of the time, she is just as sweet as she can be. Today, however, I can tell the Libby twins are starting to get on her last nerve. Then little Bobby slugs my arm hard and hollers, gotcha last. I'm about ready to thump him a good one back when Mama explodes. Caleb Michael Keller, don't you dare hit your little brother. When Mama three names you, you know you're busted. 
I unclench my fist. The Libby twins get the message too and stop gotcha-lasting each other in the back seat. It gets real quiet in the car, too quiet, like they say in the movies. I'm embarrassed by Mama singling me out, so I blurt out the first thing that pops into my poor head. Mama, remember Jill Parkin, our old babysitter? Of course, dear, Mama says. She's just a darling girl and a wonderful Miss Venable Lumber, too. (laughs) She's going to win the pageant hands down, just like I did. Mama's voice sounds happy, too happy, like she's trying to make up for yelling at me in front of everyone. Then again, it could be she's remembering winning the pageant as Miss Venable Lumber herself. But Mama, I say, Larry says Jill wears false teeth. The back seat begins to shake convulsively before the first wave of laughter breaks out. Mama's brow furrows like a freshly plowed field. Larry, darling, is that true? Her Revlon red lips part and form a hole the size of a quarter. I mean, Jill's such a lovely girl with such a nice um, figure. Yes, ma'am, that's what I heard. Larry bites his lower lip, but a repressed giggle still escapes like a silent but deadly (laughs) you-know-what. This tickles Jerry so much he rolls on his back, his feet bicycling the air. His high-pitched giggles sound like exploding popcorn from the hot oil cooker at the park theater. Pretty soon the Libby twins are laughing so hard they start hiccuping, which makes them laugh even harder. I see Mama's face turn as red as her lipstick. Stop it, boys, stop it. Her words are staccato. Right, this, minute. The brakes on the Chevrolet shriek like the Banshee and Darby O'Gill and the Little People. We shut her to a stop on the shoulder of the road near the Vestal Park ball fields. It gets quiet again, too quiet. I see Mama make a face and then twist around in her seat to let Larry and Jerry have it. Some people have naturally mean faces, but Mama isn't one of them. These folks who can look mean as a snake whenever they want, I'm talking about TV wrestlers, bill collectors, or even those old nuns at St. Patrick's who'll smack your knuckles with a ruler if you cut up in class. Then again, they have to. It's their job. But Mama, being a beauty queen and all, has absolutely no clue how to look mean. She's gotten herself into a staring contest with the Libby twins, and I can't tell right then if she's going to smack them or end up crying. To me, she looks like Natalie Wood in West Side Story when Chino tells her Tony killed Bernardo at the Rumble to, you know, avenge Riff and all. Poor Natalie is all trembling and broke up, right? Then she goes berserk and starts pounding poor Chino with his fist. Mama's got that same look just before she explodes. Shame on you, boys. Don't you know it's a sin to make fun of the afflicted? Mama's voice gets louder. Think of that poor girl's feelings. Having to wear false teeth at her age. Bless her heart. She must have been in some horrible accident or suffered an incurable gum disease as a child. (laughs) Well, Larry and Jerry look like they expect to get slapped into next week. Dead air fills the car like smoke in the dry ice well of a popsicle truck. But nothing happens. The only thing Mama slaps is the Chevrolet into gear. At the ballpark, we all jump out of the car like a pack of scalded dogs. Halfway to the field, I turn around and look back. Through the windshield of the Chevrolet, 
I see Mama daubing her eyes with her monogrammed lavender handkerchiefs with the scalloped edges. Larry Libby has me in a headlock behind the backstock of the ball field. You moron, he shouts. He's giving me one hell of a noogie. I beg God, please, don't let Larry blab this to the whole team. But Larry didn't get the memo from the Almighty. Damn it, Keller, he curses. What I told you was Jill Parkin wears falsies, <laughs> not false teeth. The team draws around us like somebody pulled a giant invisible purse string. Do you even, like, know what falsies are, Keller? I begin to sweat big drops. I feel like a bug under the magnifying glass of the sun. Like, like, false eyelashes, maybe? No. Waves of lashes pelt me, and I try to explain, but it's, it's like trying to take a drink of water from a fire hose. Jerry Libby is rolling on the ground doubled up. This seems to be his favorite position for expressing glee. They're fake boobs, you idiot. Larry hollers at the top of his lungs. Jill puts falsies under her dress to make her chest stick out. He releases me from the headlock and I stumble backwards. Everybody's laughing at me. The older boys on the team with their pimpled faces and peach fuzz mustaches laugh the hardest at Larry's sexual innuendo. Jerry walks up to me, sympathy in his eyes. It'll be all right, Caleb, he says. Just as I start to feel better, he slugs my arm and cries, Got you last! <laughs> Fight back, I tell myself, but all I do is pick up my ball cap and stomp away. My face feels on fire. Little Bobby just stares at me. He looks like a lost ball in tall weeds. Now I feel even worse. I'm a fool in my little brother's eyes, too. Well, baseball practice is agony. I muff every grounder they hit to me, and each time I come to bat, someone screams, False teeth! <laughs> <laughs> On purpose, I strike out quickly, just so I don't have to listen to it anymore. They keep up the razzing until coach makes us run laps. Of course, they all blame me for that, too. Finally, coach shouts, Bring it home, and mercifully practice ends. On the way home, Mama seems like her old self again. She buys us all lime slushes at Woody's drive-in and hums along with the pop tunes playing on the Philco. Larry, she says, I'm afraid you're mistaken about Jill Parkin's teeth. <laughs> the slush sucking stops. <laughs> it's quiet. Too quiet. Larry swallows hard and then mealy mouse around for a while until Mama cuts him off. I did a little snooping around, boys. I called a lady in my bridge club, and her husband is Jill's dentist, so she called him to make a long story short. He said, it's ridiculous. Jill has perfect teeth. In the backseat, Jerry looks like he wants to start giggling again, but his brother shakes him off like he does when they're pitching. Yes, ma'am, Larry mumbles. I'm surprised at jail, Mama says. I mean, the pageant is right around the corner, and she's running all over town with that boyfriend of hers. Mama huffs, and her wispy bangs flutter in the exhalation. I swear, he acts so fresh, and he drives a tow truck. That's why they call him Tow Willie, Mama, little Bobby says. 
She gives little Bobby one of her technicolor smiles and tousles his red hair. I know, darling. Still, as pretty as Jill is, you'd think she would be able to find a nicer boy than him. Mama fluffs her hair and checks herself out in the mirror. I'll admit he, he is good looking in a cheap sort of way. She sighs and shakes her head, but bless his heart, that ducktail and that leather jacket make him look so tacky. Mama only uses the word tacky in matters of profoundly questionable taste, the social equivalent of a mortal sin on the immortal soul of fashion. Told Willie stabbed a kid once, Mama, I say. Jill told me it was all just an accident, darling. When Mama calls me darling, I know everything will be all right. That's her love word. All the women in her bridge club have love words. Betty Chappelle's word is precious. Marge Dixon's word is pumpkin. Dorothy Renshaw's word is sweetie and so on. However, when Mama calls anyone darling, she means it as a verbal substitute for a hug. Larry Libby says, Toe Willie told me they were just playing West Side Story. Mama says, well, I still don't trust that boy. She purses her lips like she's trying to think of a nice, on the other hand, remark to say about Toe Willie, who we all know is the meanest, most irredeemable hood on Park Hill. Just take it from someone who's been there, Mama says. If Jill expects to become Miss North Little Rock, she better not fall in with bad companions. Rumors spread fast at pageant time. In the back seat, I overhear Jerry whispering to his brother, Yeah, like how she wears falsies. <laughs> I think Mama hears it too. False teeth. Where do you kids get these stories? Now I'm certain misunderstanding things runs in our family. Mama swallows hard and then quickly snaps open the top button of her dress. The plunging V in the middle of her chest disappears. We drive up Highway 107 to Park Hill and drop off the Libby Twins. When we pull into our driveway on Cedar Street, my father's car is already in the garage. Mama rushes inside to greet him, but I am in no hurry. They're probably just kissing in the kitchen anyhow. Then I feel a tug at my uniform sleeve. Caleb, little Bobby says to me, what the heck are boobs? <laughs> the end. <laughs> Daniel Keller has published four novels and numerous short stories available electronically from the Amazon Kindle Store, Apple iBooks, and Nook Books. He lives in Little Rock with his wife, Edna, and three children. How about our stories and storytellers tonight? What would you think? Thank you to all of our writers. Thank you to our live audience. And thank you to UALR Public Radio. Tales from the South is presented by William F. Lehman Public Library. Additional support provided by the Argenta Arts Foundation and the Winthrop Rockefeller Institute. You can download and listen to our podcast on our website. We are open for submissions for Southerners. For more information, visit talesfromthesouth.com. Have a great night, and we'll see you next week at Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas, for another edition of Tales from the South. Good night, everybody. Writer accommodations for Tales from the South provided by Robinwood Bed and Breakfast in Little Rock. More at RobinwoodBnB.com. And the Baker House Bed and Breakfast in North Little Rock. More at BakerHouseNLR.com.
Live sound and studio assistance provided by the UALR School of Mass Communication. You too can experience tales in person as a member of our live audience. We're now traveling throughout Arkansas and the South, bringing tales to your community. Details on hosting a live show, our schedule, and ticket information can all be found on our website, talesfromthesouth.com. Thanks for keeping the art of Southern-style storytelling alive. And we'll see you next week on Tales from the South. <laughs>